Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of Teacher's Pet Podcast. Uh, It has been a crazy busy couple of weeks. Um, Hope you guys have been catching up on all the new episodes we're pushing out, Um, including today. We're trying to get another two or three in within the next week, so make sure you keep up. Um, I'm really excited today. I always talk about um, all the friends I, I made in college that were teachers and educators because we saw each other 24-7. Um, and I have on today Mr. Eric Parker-Perry. Eric, you want to tell the people a little bit about yourself, where you're from, what you do? What's up, y'all? I'm Eric Parker-Perry. I am originally from Oklahoma City, but I spent most of my formative years in a small town called Bristow, Oklahoma. Um, I teach secondary social studies, currently doing eighth grade U.S. history and seventh grade Eastern Hemisphere geography. And I also specialize in students that are newcomers, so who are first year uh, or second year in the United States. Um, So my class is really geared towards giving them an equal education that also helps them in cases that they don't really, English isn't their first language and things along those lines. Um, I'm about to start my fourth year teaching Mm -hmm. yeah (laughs) Um, i'm here in oklahoma city uh taft middle school i'm about to start coaching for the first time in my career which is crazy as a social studies teacher i've made it this far without having to um but i'm finally feel like i'm good enough as a teacher to be able to balance both so here we are (laughs) (laughs) man uh yeah we have so much that we can talk about today. Normally, we, we try to hit about an hour, but mm-hmm. I know uh, you and I are both big soccer fans, so, you know, we got a game in at 2 o'clock. So, <laughs> yeah. we'll, try to, we'll try to keep it on the dot. We'll try to make it dense instead of uh, spread out. So, um, let's start off talking about – let's start off talking about uh, growing up in, in small-town Oklahoma – um, you're obviously uh, African American. You're also Native American as well. Um, your family's got deep, deep roots. I know in this state, you talk about your, I think it's your grandfather's or great grandfather's farm and the house that's been standing for like a hundred years or something like that. Talk about, uh, talk about what that was like. Well, so we ended up moving to Bristow probably. When I was in like second grade. It's my mom's hometown. Um, I'm Muskogee Creek through my mom. Um, so, and I was used to going to Bristow, which my grandmother lived, my aunts and all of them. So I was used to being out there, but it was definitely a bit different living there. Um, so I spent the first few years scamming kids in Bristow out of Pokemon cards and Yu-Gi-Oh cards because they didn't know anything about it. Um, <laughs> they hadn't really got there to that scale yet. So, um, and it was pretty all right. I mean, for a little bit, I mean, the kids in Bristow knew who I was so much to the point to where I started this Mandela effect thing that when we graduated, they assumed I had been there forever. <laughs> they thought I was in kindergarten in Bristow and I was like, yo, I moved here. And they're like, no, you didn't. It was weird. Um, but, uh, at first, you know, I got out there, I kind of resisted the small town lifestyle. I mean, I liked a lot of the stuff. I liked being outside. We lived in the country. Um, We lived 10 miles outside of town on land that my family's had since allotment. Um, So I was living on a house where my great grandparents and their parents and their grandparents all popped into Oklahoma on. So that was always kind of interesting to me. I really grew up having uh, this black and creek kind of mentality about everything. So early on, I was just a joy to have in my social studies classes because I'm just like, well, my family said it was like it was like this. It was like that. This happened. Why don't we talk about this? Why don't you mention that part and all this other stuff? So I was completely that kid that my rural Oklahoma teachers didn't want to have. Um, just and I would like get like we did like the land run day. And my grandma would pull me out of school and she's like, "You're not going to school for that." 
you're not going to be there for that. Um, so it was just always a lot. And I mean, I grew up around all this black and native history in Oklahoma, like you kind of mentioned before, and like I never shut the hell up about. Um, I'm Oklahoma as hell. Um, my father's side of the family originates from Boley, Oklahoma, which is one of the original black towns of Oklahoma. Um, to people listening to this outside of this area, Oklahoma has a lot of black towns um, because while it was still considered Indian territory before the state, a lot of freedmen of the tribes and everything were able to get land here and establish communities, which became these like havens for people escaping the South. So I'm, I'm still trying to do family research. I There is a possible chance due to the proximity of where Boley is and my father's family and my mother's family being Muscogee Creek that um, my tribe could have owned my father's family, which gets pretty complex. Um, yeah. yeah. So I'm, I'm trying to, it's hard to do research like that when you're only 20 something and everyone in your family is just like, well, we didn't really keep anything. And I got to dive through all these old pictures and stuff. And, it's a, it's a bunch, but I'll, I'll cross that bridge later. It's a chance. It could not be. I don't know. Um, that's yeah. That's a that's a little dichotomy right there. Isn't that crazy? Thinking about yeah, your your uh, your bloodline more or less, and that one part might have been subservient, I guess, to the other at some point. Mm -hmm. I, yeah, that's wild. No, I'm glad that you talked about um, kind of the havens that popped up uh, for black populations in Oklahoma. Um, and in the South in general, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I teach English, obviously, but one thing, whenever I talk about history with kids, um, you know, um, <laughs> whenever they ask the question, there's like, well, why aren't there more like, you know, black people around, around here? And I'm like, because they were driven out <laughs> by yeah. KKK and people mm -hmm. generally not wanting them to be there. Yeah. Uh, and it's a really interesting, uh, part of history to look at. You know, where my, my girlfriend is from, uh, way down in southeast Oklahoma. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, dude. Like, it's always, uh, her, her parents are great people. They've been there forever. But I remember one of the first times I went down there, her, uh, she mentioned something about the Black Cemetery. And mm -hmm. there's, uh, you know, there was a whole separate cemetery for all the, the Black folks that lived there at the time. And it's owned, by, it's owned by a farmer and stuff. And so it's on private land and everything. And I'm just like, it's crazy to think that there's people that can't even go see the grave of like their grandfather or something because it was segregated off somewhere else. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So grew up. Um, this is also something I want to talk about with you. So grew up in Bristow. Um, you ended up at OU basically around the same time. I actually think that you and I originally met, you were in uh, speech and debate, right? No, but I would go to stuff because I had friends in it. <laughs> yeah, I think you and I actually met way before that. But you go to OU, um, we did some refing together for intramurals and stuff like that. And then uh, you obviously got in the education program. Uh, we had one or two classes together. But uh, whenever you graduated high school, you uh, enlisted in the National Guard or? It was the, it was the Army National Guard, yeah. Army National Guard. Can you talk a little bit about, I wanted to get into this with you. Because um, I think you're, you're completely done with your obligations, correct? Yes, I'm done. Perfect. <laughs> now we can talk about it. Um, <laughs> Why Why did you decide to enlist? So it, it all comes back to this mentality that I had leaving Bristow. So I, after having fallen through part of high school into this small town American dream that I thought was really cool for some reason, um, I listened to too many Kenny Chesney songs or something at the time. I don't know. <laughs> I starkly transitioned from like this pure love of Bristow, despite its numerous flaws, to a like, yo, what the what the hell am I talking about? I gotta get out of this place kind of thing. 
So um, I decided, even though I had acceptances to other schools and scholarships and money to go to other schools, I decided um, I'm going to go to OU because my mentality at the time was I'm better than these people I went to high school with. Um, everyone's going to go to UCO and that's like being high school all over again. I can't do that. I've got to get away from this place. I got to get away from these people and do my own thing. So I'm only like one of three people that went to OU out of my graduating class. So, which is cool because OU is big enough. You, at first I thought you would never see anybody, but OU, when you get down to it, it's like a pretty small place. Like you see the same people over and over again. Yep. Um, so I made the decision that I was going to go to OU. My mom had to drop out of OU. She had to finish there and things like that. And I was going to be the one to pull it off. Um, and then I realized <laughs> I have no money. Um, <laughs> my parents don't have credit scores good enough to get me student loans. So it's in that situation where I can't even get student loans and put myself in the debt and I had no chance to get money. I got like one Sally Mae loan, which was the worst thing on earth to survive the first year at OU. And then second year, it was hitting hard. I was like, I don't know if I'll be able to afford this. I was losing my mind because I couldn't get into Gaylord. I was a journalism major and I could not pass this grammar test to get into Gaylord, um, which depressed the shit out of me. Uh, can I cuss on this? Yeah, that's okay. Okay, okay. I was gonna say, whoops. Um, like, all right. Which it was, it was depressing me. I was having a mental breakdown. Everything in Ferguson was happening. And it was just like awful. And then out of the middle of nowhere, when you're at your lowest, an email from a recruiter comes in through my OU email. And she's like, hey, you want free tuition? And I was like, man, I'm at rock bottom. At that point, I had just decided to change my major to education and started to really kind of fall in love with the idea of being a teacher. And I was just like, I have to do this thing that I never thought I would ever do to make sure that I can do this thing. I can finish school. I can do all this stuff. I was very much not all for joining the National Guard. My brother was in the Army, and I was like, well, if my brother can do it, how bad could it be? Um, so recruiter sent the email. I signed up. I left immediately, but pretty much I was like, all right, when can we go so I can get through this and get back here to what I want to do? Um, and I did that. I spent six months in South Carolina for basic training in AIT, um, which for a little bit, I was pretty indoctrinated. I'm not going to – the basic training machine does what it does pretty good. Like I was really – I like got immediately came home and bought like from Hastings, like this weird ass American Eagle head and a big U S flag and Oklahoma flag and had them in my apartment. I was, I was, uh, I was, I was in, <laughs> um, it didn't take long being back home. The guards are good because you can, you only have to do stuff for like one week in a month, give or take sometimes. Um, <laughs> I was home most of the time. So I came back to myself pretty quickly, but I was just like, for a little bit, I was like lost in the fog uh, to make a history reference the fog of war, but except it was the, the fog of American exceptionalism. Like it was crazy. <laughs> Watch all these world war two movies at basic. It really got you hyped. Uh, we're like, we're saving the world kind of like it was, it was really crazy. It's a, the hero complex just dives in quickly. It's it's deep and it's 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 rooted. It's crazy. Um, but yeah, six years. Uh, and the longer that I was in it, the more like upset I was getting with it because we did a bunch of stupid stuff that wasted time and money for no reason. And then there's like a lot of like people that were in that were in the same situation as me or others. Like they're usually like poor people who come from. Honestly, it's like their only chance at anything, and they like praise on that, and it's crazy. It's bad. <laughs> that's what I, yeah, that's the thing I was really kind of getting at, I think, with this is, mm -hmm. you know, I, I have a good friend that he just graduated from medical school, and the way he, way he paid for medical school was joining the Army. Mm -hmm. But he, he could have gotten loans. He could have taken other routes, but he decided, no, I, I want to do this. I think it'll be good for me. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, that's I respect that decision. That's fine. Um, I worry a lot of times about the predatory nature 
of recruiting of kids. Um, I mean, you and I are the same age, and I would say probably up until about the last year, I didn't really fully understand uh, who I was in most ways. Yeah. Um, and to, to take 17 and 18-year-olds, I look back at myself at 17 or 18, and I'm like, that kid was a freaking idiot. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Well, not you, in general. <laughs> yeah, just in general, right? And it's it's concerning. I I get concerned that it uh, seems to be preying on the people that realistically just need the most help. They don't need more obligations thrown on top of that, um, which that goes back to a whole lot of other issues about cost of college and everything else. But yeah. um, so – get out of oh you graduated um and you got a job at uh northwest clausen which is big uh high school in oklahoma city public schools um so your position specifically with uh first generation students um did you just kind of fall into that or how'd that happen um i found out about that um my first like week at Northwest Classroom. Um, I basically, my I, I student taught at Northwest, so I, I knew a lot about the demographics of the school and things like that. And it was kind of like right up the alley in places that I wanted to teach at. Mm. Um, but being the first year teacher um, out of the blue, I was basically given and me just really wanting a job. I was basically just given the position that nobody wanted, which was, I got the smallest room on the floor. I taught all ninth grade. I had two sections of sheltered classes, um, both with 30 students plus, um, only one with a paraprofessional that uh, spoke another language or just in general to assist and be there. And then I had a another class where, like, it was supposed to be co-taught because about, like, 80% of those kids were on IEPs. I had no co-teacher. <laughs> um, so that was my first year. I basically, and I taught Oklahoma history and civics, so, so or financial literacy. So basically, and none of them were lined up. So I had a, oh, and I had seniors first hour because they needed the credit and no one else wanted to teach human geography. So I had senior human geography first hour. A second hour's plan. Third hour was sheltered uh, or financial literacy for one semester. So it's my newcomers and then it's financial literacy. The next hour was my co-taught, the class that should have been co-taught and they were on Oklahoma history. And then I had another sheltered class that was on Oklahoma history. And then another just pretty much on level ninth grade class that was on financial literacy. So I had to plan for each section separately. Mm -hmm. They all had different needs, which was, I'd like to call it literal trial by combat for your first year of teaching. Like it was... <laughs> nuts it was crazy and my whole thing and you know we're on the we're getting i'm getting observed and stuff like that and i'm like losing points for classroom management i'm just like there's you came to observe me in my co-class that needs to be co-taught and i'm being dinged on classroom management well the same thing followed the next year i swapped um human geography for AVID. I started teaching AVID, mm -hmm. um, which I had never taught before. Me and um, Rebecca Decker, who was math ed at OU with us, we both got dropped into AVID together. We started working in Northwest together. Like, you do AVID together. And we're like, okay. Um, so we had to learn how to teach AVID without going to trainings. So we just had to figure it out. And then it was the same situation. I didn't have a class with um, students on IEPs anymore. I had two honors classes and then my two sheltered classes, which is the same situation. I had one paraprofessional in one sheltered class. I, we didn't have enough for me to have them in the other one, but I've been learning Spanish. They're just like, you can do it on your own, but it's still 35 kids to me. 
And then my seventh hour was honors and sheltered because we didn't have enough teachers for the sheltered section. So my class, honors class, was split in half. It was sheltered and honors at the same exact time. So I'm having to, and I had a para in that class, fortunately. Uh, Miss Moon, I love her to death. She was really cool. Um, but I'm basically honors, social studies activities here, while also making sure my sheltered students are getting um, the accommodations that they need and things like that. And it was just, it was just gymnastics. It was crazy. I had a bigger room though, so that's cool. <laughs> that, <And> uh, <laughs> man, oh my gosh. I, uh, you know, I was at Putnam City last year and then mm -hmm. ended up moving back home, be closer to family, had a nice job. Um, and dude, the, the problems that, or if you want to call them urban, whatever you want to describe mm -hmm. them as, um, you know, school districts that are typically in, in your city that are predominantly uh, groups that have been marginalized throughout history, man, the problems that those schools face um, are almost always resource-based. Mm -hmm. So it's like, you're talking about, I, I averaged, I think last year, because I was teaching juniors and seniors, I think my average student count for each class was about 32 to 33 but I had one class had 38 kids in it. Yeah. Um, and I don't care. Like, you can be the best teacher in the world. Your kids can love you. You can't teach 38 kids. Nope. You know, somebody somebody's getting let down whenever you have that many kids in there. Because there's mm -hmm. no way. There, I remember there was one day we were doing, uh, we started uh, research papers or something like that. So I was telling them they need to pick a topic in this general area. And uh, I had, I told him, I was like, I need to approve your topic before you do it. And I don't think I sat down that entire day because mm -hmm. I was just walking around to desks. Um, and also the whole thing about not having a co-teacher, like, it's literally illegal. <laughs> it's against the law to not have a co-teacher in a co-taught class. But because they literally cannot afford or find somebody to fill that position, mm -hmm. um, kids just get left behind. Um, no, it was bad. We had one on paper. It's just that she was so stretched thin throughout the building. She couldn't even. Yeah, I we had that we had that same problem because we'd have a, a co-teacher that was covering four different classes for one period, mm -hmm. and I'm like, you know, there were people that get frustrated with that teacher, and I'm like, she can't help it. I'm like, you know, there's there's four classrooms that they have to get around to. Um, mm -hmm. I I will say though, man. I don't know about you. I've had I've had great co-teachers my whole career. Whenever I have had one, I think that those sped teachers, man, sped teachers, especially in school districts that really need sped teachers, they are uh, like angels. Oh so. my gosh, they really are. And I, it's Northwest Northwest. I love our sped department at Taft. Uh, it's my first year with them, but uh, the Northwest sped team has a very special place in my heart. And I used to spend a lot of my time, um, like for example, they'd, help, they'd host like a science fair and the students would create these projects and everything. And they would like try to get like so many people to like try to come see the things that these students made and stuff like that, everything. They want to just come down there and plan. Well, I used to take my classes down there. Um, I'm like, all right, we're gonna go down and we're gonna go to the science fair and we're gonna look at the stuff, uh, let's do it. And the kids were great about it. They were like hyping up their classmates and it's honestly, a beautiful side. Um, I, I love Northwest class and with a passion. Like I had zero intentions of teaching anywhere else. I love, I love the colors purple. <laughs> so that's <laughs> when, um, and you know, it was just a good fit. I liked this area of the city. Uh, my uncle was an alum from Northwest. So it was just like pretty cool. Um, so uh, I, I, I know what ended up happening, I guess, somewhat. Um, why did you end up moving to Taft? I think when it boils down to it is um, kind of the nuances of the kind of predicament education is in in Oklahoma. Um, so basically, I had no desire to teach any grade other than ninth grade. I think it's one of the most important grades to teach at the high school level. Um, 
especially in the realm of social studies, I did not have good ninth grade social studies teachers. Um, so I wanted to make sure that they're getting one quality social studies education in ninth grade and that they also have a trusted adult from the jump building. Um, I had no intention of doing anything else. I like teaching ninth grade. Um, well, most a lot of high school teachers um, completely uh, want to avoid ninth grade. I enjoyed it. Um, they were just crazy and weird enough to really kind of mesh with me. Um, but however, for social, I'm not sure how it is. I don't think it's like this in other subjects, but for social studies, especially in ninth grade with Oklahoma history and um, financial literacy or civics, you don't have to necessarily be certified in those subjects to teach them. So what it boiled down to it is, I had a teaching degree. I was gonna be reaching my third year. And once I finished my third year, I was gonna be on a continuing contract rather than a non-continuing. I didn't plan on coaching at that point. I didn't plan on teaching any grade other than ninth grade. And it was basically costly to keep me there in that position. Um, so when it boils down to it, you have to make a choice. Um, I, I think regardless, I, I know me and some of the admin didn't really see eye to eye on how a classroom should operate. And now I'm kind of noticing the trend of teachers that kind of look like me not getting chances to make it at Northwest currently, but conversation for another day. I just also know it boils down to it is it's kind of just the doggy dog world of education right now here. Like I, they can't afford to keep me there. It's just, it is what it is. Um, I'm not, and I didn't want to do something I didn't enjoy doing to be there. So I during, during the pandemic, <laughs> I'm virtually teaching, I get a phone call and they're just like, yeah, we're not bringing you back next year. And I was like, okay, why? But like, they, they don't have to give me a reason why, which I think is stupid, but whatever. Um, so I did the next pettiest thing and went across the street to the middle school. <laughs> <laughs> um, mainly because I enjoyed these students. I didn't, I wanted to stay in Oklahoma city, but I also didn't want to be at another high school where I was to my students seeing as like Mr. Parker left us for this other place. Um, I was at Taft serving the same students I was serving before. It was really kind of cool. Uh, I had a friend, um, who went to OU. Her name was Hannah. Um, she taught English at Taft and she was just like, wait, you don't, you don't have a job right now. I was like, no, she was just like, what, don't do anything. And then I get like a call from one of her assistants that was just like, you know, we got you scheduled for an interview. And I was just like, let me, y'all want me. I was in a, I was in a real kind of weird place where I thought my teaching wasn't good. Mm. Um, I felt like maybe I wasn't doing something right in my room and things like that. But when the students started sending me, when the news came out that I wasn't going to be there anymore and because the students spread that around themselves, um, they started sending me all this stuff, these emails, these messages and things like that. And I kind of realized that I did what I was supposed to do um, and making a positive impact in these students' lives. So, uh, And then I got like an award for... 20 under two or whatever. And I was like, oh, that's hype. I'm, I'm good. And I kind of finally fell back and like, I'm good at what I do. I'm doing it for the right reasons. We're going to be all right. And the middle school, the Taft, it has been, I mean, despite the pandemic teaching, I've, this is probably, this is, this is a blast. I've had a great time this year teaching despite all the awfulness. I only taught, well, I'm teaching two subjects next year, but I only taught one subject. I only taught U.S. history. I still had my sheltered class that I enjoy teaching. Um, I had a parent in that sheltered class. I had a colleague that taught U.S. history with me that we were working as a actual team. It was really good um, back and forth going between us, and it was really nice. The admin are really cool. The other teachers, a lot of them are real welcoming. I made friends quick. I was actually like, when things were kind of safe-ish, I was actually able to socialize with a lot of the, I don't, for, at Northwest, I really only kind of socialized outside of school with Becca because we were friends before we got there. Mm -hmm. And mainly my social studies department because in a couple of years, all I really saw, the building was so huge, you didn't really get the chance to see everybody, but I was out here having conversations and we'd like, 
get food or one of the principals would have like a little small cookout at their house or something like that. And I was like, I've been wanting something like this because how can you build a school community if your staff is in the community? How can you do all that stuff? Like the kids know everyone in the school hates each other. Like what's the, mm. what does that show them? Like, there, There is so much to unpack with what you were just talking about that whole time. So <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, I mean, obviously let's just start with the culture thing. Cause that's the last thing that you mentioned. Um, I had a meeting the other day with my principal, my assistant principal, and we were talking about, I'm, I'm teaching an AP class next year, so we had to talk about that and everything. But um, the things, the other thing we really talked about was uh, building school culture. Um, and that, as an administrator, I think, is like one of your main, one of your main jobs. Mm -hmm. um, and it's like you said, if your staff is not, community how can you expect your students to be um i think that especially in oklahoma because of all the pressure and crap that happens in this state um a lot of times teachers kind of uh pin problems on each other or they or they look for issues in each other um now don't get me wrong there's bad teachers we oh both, yeah no for sure we, uh, we both know there's bad teachers but <laughs> at the same time you know my approach generally is that whenever i see someone that i in my in my ego think is a bad teacher i'm usually like what do they need to be a good teacher like what is what's going to differentiate that um you know uh we we face a unique problem i think with uh culture and community in schools especially now because of all the changes in society and technology um so the question is how do you do it um one thing you were covered by i think it was the oklahoman talking about how you build culture in your classroom, um, especially with those first-generation students. What what are the biggest steps that you took in your classroom to build community? Um, so the first step, the, there's there's two steps. Not, well, for, okay, the first step is two things, and I think that they work in tandem with each other and are the basis, I think, to any classroom, anywhere, um, for any reason. And the first thing is, especially with working with the students I work with and things like that. So one is respect, not in the classical sense of like the kids need to walk in day one. No, I'm the teacher. They're the student. I make the have their respect. It's showing the students respect. I see my students as people. And something that I've noticed, one in my own, and I, I like to think about my own schooling growing up and how it affects my teaching. And I think that's something that a lot of teachers need to keep in mind is their student self um, and how they reacted. I was, uh, I was a smart ass little turd when I was in eighth grade. So I try to keep what my eighth grade self needed and what they would think about certain situations not everything but just i keep that in mind just so i can put myself in the student's shoes and understand how certain things being said to them the way they're spoken to things like that affect them um especially with middle school and that early high school area and even the older high school kids they want to be seen as their own person as their that as a you know they want to be treated with some sort of respect they don't like being talking down to or treated like they're idiots. Um, we can all do stupid things. I do stupid stuff still at 26 and they do stupid <laughs> stuff at 13. Um, but that shouldn't be the thing that I generalize all my students based off of. I treat them with an air of respect. I let them voice their concerns, their ideas and things like that. And then also make sure they're visible. Um, that's what the visual representations in the room. I want my classroom to be a place that they're comfortable in. We can't have these deep conversations on history, on life, on anything if they're not comfortable where they are. Um, my room literally looks like uh, someone like threw up all sorts of different stuff all over the wall. There's all the flags, there's posters, there's encouraging messages. And not just like in the general sense, like there's like artwork students have made messages. I have dry erase boards and they can leave messages on the dry erase boards for their peers. Quotes in multiple languages, greetings on the board, 
whatever history month it is, I have it up there. Religious ceremonies, they're up there in their first languages and things like that. So the room is geared to be a place for the students. I have, and I call it open room. It was kind of managed this year because of safety protocols, but basically the room is theirs. Like they don't have to ask me to go grab an item or something like that. Or if they're working on their assignment and they want to just go grab a dry erase board and some of the markers and draw on those while they're working on their Chromebook, then that's fine with me. Um, there's a bench. If they just need a second to go sit down, <laughs> it just it's there. Um, so I, I always start my bases at those two points because you want it, it starts with. OK. I want them to see my class as a place where they belong and a place that they want to be at. You mm -hmm. start with the classroom. You start with a teacher. That creates a chain. If you have more teachers doing that, it becomes the whole school. I'm not saying everyone has to go and throw up a bunch of flags and stuff on their wall, but they need to figure out what fits within their realm of who they are and what they do, that they're one, showing students respect, and two, they're making themselves, they're making the students feel welcome. They want to be at school. Once they have that, you got them. Um, they ha I have their respect. They have my respect. They feel comfortable. And that's when the best learning happens. I have colleagues that want to know why certain students have hired grades. I don't really think grades are a good indicator of things, but they want to know why students have higher grades and they're turning stuff into my room. I was like, it's a mutual respect. They're comfortable here they're learning they know i'm not putting immense pressure on them to figure this thing out this complex thing instantly and we can kind of build and learn and grow together um i we went off on a tangent a student had a question because everything is relevant that we teach so a student has a question i'll take us down that road so the kids can have these discussions and conversations but those don't happen if the student isn't comfortable because they're never going to ask that question Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, that I've never, I've never had a, a pro I'm, I mean, I've only taught really high school my whole career and I've never taught freshmen. I've only taught uh, juniors and seniors and then sophomores this last year, which I will say this before I, before I dive into anything else, I love teaching sophomores. I didn't think that I was going to love teaching <laughs> sophomores, but the, the more I teach, the more I realize is that, by the time students get to their junior and senior year, they're basically the product of where they've been. And it's really hard to affect change, even with a really good environment, once you get into those older grades. You can really try to, and I, I really do. Um, I'm moving up to seniors next year, and I'm completely, me and uh, me and the other senior teacher are like, let's throw out the old curriculum and let's really make this something different yeah. so that kids can get something out of it. That idea of respect is so central. Um, I don't know about you, I have three classroom rules and that's it because I think everything else falls under them and it's uh, respect yourself, respect yeah. your classmates and respect me whenever, whenever I've shown you that yeah. <laughs> there's enough left. And, you know, the thing is, is that those hard conversations happen whenever they do trust you. Um, you know, our my town's pretty conservative, um, different political ideology for me, but students are willing to talk to me about their beliefs and things like that and be willing and open to talk about new things because they know that I'm not approaching it from, well, you have to think this way. It's, uh, it's a conversation. And I listen, man, your uh, the flags, the whole idea about creating a space. Um, I think everybody has to figure out some way to make kids feel at home in their classroom. Yeah. And uh, I think that, I think some people view that as like, well, I don't get paid to do that, but like, really, we do, right? It's, yeah, I mean, it's part of the job. <laughs> yeah, that's part of creating a learning environment that is conducive to real, authentic learning. Um, let's dive into this. Uh, so, social studies, coaching. Um, in Oklahoma, pretty much most of your coaching staff has to be employed by your school assistant coaches, not as much, mm -hmm. but for instance, if you're a head coach, I, I think you're pretty much required by law yeah. to be employed in, in the district. Um, and that can create some very 
weird situations like the one you were talking about being at Northwest Clawson. Um, <laughs> I mean, how do you, how do you fix that problem? Because honestly, I don't, I don't like to dog on people. I love coaches. I had great coaches growing up. They, <laughs> they influenced my life. I think that they do influence the lives of their kids. Oh, yeah. However, if it's at the expense of the learning of students, it becomes a major issue for me. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what do you think can be done to try and mitigate that problem? Um, I think it's tough. Um, I'm the same way. I was an athlete my whole time, my whole life. Um, and I've had everywhere from the coaches that were like my Oklahoma history coach and football coach. It was like ninth grade. He's just like, here's the book. I'm going to drum with my pencils over here. And we're going to watch this video um, with Oklahoma rising for the centennial for the hundredth time. Um, which is drilled in my brain forever. And I was joking about it and showed it to my kids. And they're like, you had to watch this? I was like, guys, like once a week, we watch this video. <laughs> it sucks. I'm like, I know. And then I've had coaches get flip script of that. I had a really um, great coach that he taught my anatomy and like AP environmental science class. And he was really cool. Um, and he was an excellent teacher. So I always kind of try to like lean towards that. Um, but I, I mean, I mean, I've had coaches at like my, my head football coach in high school who just taught health, and he knew what he 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 knew what his role was. He was like, I teach health, I coach football, and that's what I do. Um, I think the important thing is making sure that. And I was really because I've always wanted a coach, and I was really torn in this kind of realm. I was like, well, I don't want to be seen as. I guess like my ninth grade history teacher. I was just like, I want to make sure that I'm kind of the teacher first, coach second. Um, Because while I might've had great experiences with a lot of these coaches, I know other students in their classes who maybe felt like that they weren't. um, Because um, the, the focus needs to be on the kind of the collective. Um, I could easy, easily, um, next year, kind of focus my attention on my soccer boys and my basketball boys. Um, but I always got to make sure that I kind of still fall in the rain that I'm the teacher for all these students. Um, kind of just stick to what I was doing before. And that's the main reason why I wanted to wait to start coaching. I want to make sure that I had kind of who I was as a teacher figured out. Um, and I was in the guard and I couldn't do both at the same time anyways. <laughs> but now yeah. Now I feel actually finally confident in how I run my classroom, how I work with students, how I teach my content and things like that. I finally feel like I'm able to take on that second hat and kind of provide that other thing that helped me to other students. Because I see the importance of it. I had friends, I have students who their only reason for showing up is through athletics. and they need proper people in those positions too. There's nothing saying that I can't take what I do in my classroom to the pitch, to the court. Um, I can make that team a place where they're treated with respect. Um, they're given that kind of not complete control because we want to make sure we're still following the balance, but they're still given that creative control and that they're still feel like they belong on that team. Um, I was the hustle kid. I was never like the like number one athlete, but I was, I worked hard enough to make myself valuable for the team. So I always kind of want to keep that in mind and see that. Mm. Uh, And I just, I think it really just comes with, when you're a coach, you're still a teacher. You're a teacher. That's what you're doing. So I really think it needs to come with the mindset of, kind of teacher first coaching because I think that builds better. And I've seen I'm seeing a lot more coaches and successful coaches move to that. Um, Matt Ross at Northwest, I had a meeting with him the other day. I knew him when I worked there. He's the boys coach um, for soccer. They're really successful and he's moved in the mall. He taught math and he was moving to this model where he's making it mirror his classroom. He wants the, the, the boys to think critically um, see different patterns and things like that, really that the game come to them because that's where success comes. Um, 
and I'm going to be mirroring that. It's exactly what I was thinking of when I started, well, got into this. I was like, I want them to be able to create, understand the game and things like that. To get that, you have to create the foundation and just like learning in the classroom. Mm. So. Yeah, no, that's, man, that's such a great point. Cause I, I took the, uh, took the head coaching job for the girls soccer team at Putnam city last year. And I definitely, I was not ready to balance, to balance that out. And it, it was tough. Um, and eventually I, you know, I ended up stepping down from that role because I, A, I didn't have any time, which I, I needed it still at that point in my life. Um, it is kind of crazy. You sound a lot like me where it's like uh, year three of teaching the pandemic year. Uh, you found really kind of who you were. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I always laugh about that. I'm like, I mean, I always, I don't know about you. I prefer organized chaos. I don't like, I don't like, I mean, there are, there are times for quiet reflection and things like that, but you know. my classroom is chaotic because kids are talking to each other for discussions. Kids are moving around doing activities. Um, and I was like, well, I was, I was just built for this kind of teaching, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, once you, once you get past, I feel like that third year, um, especially if you've had some consistent curriculum, I think that the day to day worries about lesson plans and stuff like that starts to go away. Mm -hmm. Um, so to all those new teachers out there listening, uh, it does get easier. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that whole idea about letting your letting your teaching style bleed into your coaching is so important. Eddie Wright, the the boys coach at, at uh, Putnam City and the athletic director, he used to he used to be a teacher, but he's the athletic director full time now. But he really uh, he puts a heavy emphasis on developing those boys as people, mm -hmm. um, and it has a profound impact on those kids. Uh, mm -hmm. And it's really it's really cool to see that. Um, Let's let's jump into this a little bit. So let's talk about let's talk about building resilience in students first. We'll talk about curriculum and social studies, and then we'll we'll kind of wrap it up. Um, you know, one critique that you always hear from uh, older generations typically is that uh, students uh, that are our students' age are soft, right? That uh, they're not strong, they're not strong-willed, whatever, you know, derogatory term you want to use. Um, do you feel that way about students this age? Um, and if if so or if not, how do you think we can help kids become, uh, I guess, lifelong learners, but also um, people who, who push through hard things? So I actually... And this, this kind of got me um, scolded by a couple of my peers. Uh, I actually believe the opposite. I think, um, especially a lot of my students, um, are more gritty and courageous than any other group of people. Um, mainly because I've seen my students do something that I've seen generations not do and that's actually be themselves um, and embrace themselves and kind of reject the fact that, and there's always the kind of counterculture and things that rejects, but I've never seen it to this scale. Mm. Uh, I have so many students that are, understand themselves better at 13 or 14 than uh, adults in my life do today at, in their forties and fifties. Um, and, it's it's honestly amazing. Um, I had, I remember when I was in, and even I I tell them this all the time um, that I'm proud of like the things that they do, even when they see it as they're just doing the regular. I see it that from my student point of view when I was a kid that that was, that's like, I'm from small town Oklahoma. That's social suicide, man. Man, you're gonna. PTA is going to be all over you about this and that and everything. I have students who risk their lives to be themselves. Um, and that's amazing. I had a student, she um, got into it. She was constantly getting into it with this teacher because this teacher was constantly telling her she was stupid and didn't understand these things. And she's too young to understand these things and blah, blah, this, blah, blah, that. Well, I was 
teaching a lesson about um, slave revolt and standing up for yourself, basically. Um, so this student was just like, she came to me later. She's like, I know you can't sign this, Ms. Parker, but I want to let you know, I made a petition for us to send to the principal on how we want to be treated better by be treat be treated better by this teacher. Mm. And she's like, I just want to let you know that what we talked about in class made me think about that. And I'm gonna do mm. it. And I'm just like that's awesome. I didn't say I was like, I'm proud of you. I wrote a little note. Yeah. Stuff which she sent me an email that she framed it on her wall. Um which is cool personally. Um but I was sitting there thinking, I had a similar teacher in Bristow when I was younger who just constant disrespect, pretty straightforward racism and stuff like that. And because of kind of how we were kind of, I wouldn't say completely taught to be, but kind of, you know, just ignore it, ball with this, ball with that, let it go, things like that toe the line and then just move on kind of thing. We kind of just let it go on. The kids at my hometown, this this teacher is still here. She lost her job this year because they were just like, we're not putting up with it. And, it, and it's amazing. These students don't put up with disrespect. They want to be seen as a, they see what's right and wrong. They don't play these lines and play these games. And I think that is awesome. Um, and I think that's something that's good. Um, a lot of generations, a lot of people are kind of told that, yeah, this bad stuff happens. It's just kind of is what it is. Deal with it. And uh, this generation says, no, we're not going to deal with it. I think that's amazing. They're just like, how can y'all, and they're, they're confused. They're like, how can y'all sit here with all these issues and not want to do something about it? And I feel like every generation has these people that are saying these things that are always like this, like, y'all, this is not good. Let's do something different. And I don't know if I've ever seen it to this, and from a historical scale, at this scale, this many people, this many of a generation that are collectively like, this is dumb. Let's do something better. Um, I think that's personally cool. Now, again, I, I'm now being lumped into this gym, which is it's pretty close. We're, we're right on that borderline. We're right on the edge, yeah. So, and when my colleagues, some of my older colleagues will say stuff like this, and I'm like, y'all are disconnected completely. Like, how can you not see how cool this is? Um, but that's just, you know, you're just kind of, and I also tell the students, especially when they're dealing with you know, older people or people who don't understand themselves, that um, while you don't have to, you know, let it slide, you also need to make an attempt to try to figure out why they think the way they think so yeah. then you can try to create a proper way of getting through something. So I posed that question to my colleagues and I was just like, well, why do y'all think that they think like this? Why do you think that they're choosing to do like this? And most of them just choose not to care. They, like, they just need to do this. They just need to respect me. And then my students kind of pose the same question. They're just like, Mr. Parker, how do you feel about respect? I'm like, you have to give it to get it. And they're well, just like, exactly. And I'm like, well, and it's the whole idea about like whenever, <coughs> typically whenever you have students that um, might cause problems or whatever it is in classrooms or um, vocally be disrespectful, I almost always find it's because it hasn't been modeled to them correctly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and just being told, do this, do that by somebody that doesn't actually respect you. Um, that just makes them even more indignant. And I, I don't blame them for it. They're young, they're rebellious. Um, and that's, com you know, completely understandable in that situation. It just blows my mind whenever you have people that, um, that are of the mentality that they should just do it. It's like, you're the adult, do the, do the adult thing and, and figure it out. Um, yeah, man whole idea about respect super 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 important um i'm i'm glad that you talked about the resilience um of this generation because i think it's i think it's a different kind of resilience it's not one that we're used to mm -hmm. um but i think it's awesome uh let's jump into our last big topic here so uh i'll just leave it open-ended what are your biggest problems with oklahoma social studies curriculum um, 
I still think we kind of, as a, I, I, all history is important, but I still think that we kind of waste time with certain things and the kind of the way we frame stuff. So it's getting better, um, especially here in the city. Um, the curriculum is pr getting pretty good. And the kind of the way social studies is trending now is more um, critical thinking, CERs and things like that. This is what happened. What do you think about it? And where does that thinking come from? Or what do you think about this? Can you provide some sort of evidence to support it? And I think that's a good trend. Um, it, breaking kids of that habit in social studies is that's a good thing about being in middle school now is that I can do that earlier. Uh, kids complaining that can we just get a worksheet and like, nope, we're gonna get into this thing. Um, but there's still a lot of kind of discrepancies. So for example, I have to teach US history to students who just showed up in the United States. And that's hard to do. Mm. Um, with a lot of my kids from here, they have some sort of background already. Um, they know who some of the key people are. And then based on what their elementary teacher is, I can expand on that. Yeah, you learn about George Washington, first president, blah, 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 blah. Okay, now let's dive into the bad things about him. Um, I, that foundation is already there. I have to just kind of start from go with a lot of my newcomers because the standards haven't really been shifted for them. The method of how we teach them is, but the standards themselves are still the same. Um, and that's and that's a problem across the board. Uh, we have students who newcomers, and their math standards are our current eighth grade math standards. But this student might not have been in school since they were in third grade. Mm -hmm. Situations like that. So I think those kind of need to be looked at and reworked. But Oklahoma is getting better. Um, when I taught Oklahoma history, my litmus test was if Tulsa, the race massacre, was in it, because it kind of wasn't. Whenever I was in. <laughs> Ninth grade, I knew all about it just from being black and from the area, but like I was really curious about that when I started teaching Oklahoma history the first year, and it was there. And I was like, okay, cool, it's in the book now. Oh, that's fantastic! Like, so it's getting better. Um, I don't think I wouldn't say it's perfect, just again, we kind of waste Thanks a lot that. of time on certain things that. I don't think the kids need to really, and that's why we got a lot of creative freedom in our district of what are the things the kids need to know? And we work with our colleagues of what are the important standards and what are some things we can talk about in passing? And mm -hmm. I think that's a good trend um, when done in the right realm. It's also understanding your kids. Uh, I can't just spend my whole time talking about this certain group of people. Most of my kids aren't them. Mm -hmm. so I have to find that in this in the standards are getting there. They're getting to like talk about, you know, don't just talk about slavery. Talk about resistance to slavery. Um, don't just talk about removal. Talk about the Seminole and Creek fighting back or the Cherokee fighting back to the courts, like stuff like that. Like it's getting better because before. And I was talking to a lot of older social studies teachers, and they had to kind of do that themselves. Um, I had a lot of good mentor teachers at Northwest, teachers of color that were just like, we had to bring those stories in to the standards for our students. Mm -hmm. um, because the students are interested in history, and they want to they see themselves in it, not just as victims. Um, whenever I'm talking about, you know, I spent a whole I spent a whole day bullying Texas. <laughs> um, you know, we talk about the Alamo, and uh, I talk about how it's like the biggest celebrated L of all time. My newcomer students from Mexico love it when I make fun of Texas. It's it's a blast, and we have a good time doing it. Um, you know. I'll show the, I literally show the clip from SpongeBob of Texas being stupid and stuff like that. And it's just things like the little things like that, you know, bringing up how this correlates with the country you're from down the road or the country you're from later on, um, or your group of people, your group of people, this group of people that never gets talked about. 
we uh, do a lot of stuff like that. We dedicate time into looking up people from this time period and what they did. And then at the end of the year, I ask this year, it was, it was brand new. I'm going to do it later. I'm going to do it next year too. But I asked them a, a large scale CER. Your claim is something that you think that we learned that we shouldn't have. We didn't need to. Something you think that we learned that we should have learned that was good or something you think we should like, we should have been learning this. And before we got shut down because of an outbreak, but before I was getting these really good concepts, like someone was like, we don't learn enough LGBTQ plus history about the United States. And I was like, that's a good one. Someone was just like, did we really need to learn about the Stamp Act? <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> You're correct. Um, <laughs> I had to spend weeks talking about the reasons for the revolution for my students to be like, that's it. Taxes and money. And I'm like, I know, right? They're just like, oh, we're so petty. Um, so it's stuff like that. I think that social studies is getting to a place to where it's more critical. It's more opening. Um, it's more representative. And I think it's going to do a lot going forward. Yeah, man, the whole the whole discussion about uh, telling telling the full story, right? Like whenever you read a book, you're not just going to read the climax of it. You, mm. you, you got to read the whole thing. And history, I, I look at history like like I look at a book. It's a story and everything has a cause and effect. It's, mm -hmm. you know, there are ripples through time that cause everything that we're at, that we're pretty much where we are now as a result of all of that. Yeah. Um, so it's good to hear that uh, the things seem to be trending in that direction. Um, I hope that's the case everywhere. I feel like you and I come from a pretty forward thinking uh, environment yeah. <laughs> compared to a lot of other places, but you know, it takes time. Um, last thing we'll get off of here. Uh, as a system, education as a whole system, what are three things that you would like to see change in the next 10 years? Grading and how we value grading. Love it. Um, just as a, I went to a PLC and they talked about this, like the truly what is the purpose of this numbering lettering system um, and how it doesn't actually show student achievement. It shows student work, but not necessarily learning. Um, we switched to standards-based as a team this year. And, uh, you know, we, like, we have to have grades pretty much mandated by law. And so within the confines of the current system, I was like, this is the best way. Yeah. And, you know, we let kids redo any assignment that they were getting a grade on. And it was the best thing that we could have done with the parameters that we have, man. Yeah. Best best year I've had because of that. Solid. Um, I think two... This is loaded. Um, it is loaded. Yeah, so so grading, grading for sure. Um, two is just kind of... Kind of a collective imagining of what we're actually doing um because i feel like a lot of times we get away from the point me and a colleague had this conversation about that because we lost a student last year um and she was just like did you know going through this lesson doing this standard do all that stuff change the trajectory of their life did it matter um, kind of just the thinking about is like read finally what is our real role as a teacher um, and kind of getting back to that like um, and I'm kind of trending towards that yes and the pandemic made me really kind of thinking about it because oh. you know I can't be too stressed about most of our year we're virtual I can't be too stressed about whether the student is learning this but I mean my more stress is about their well-being um, so kind of really just getting back to that kind of basis. Um, 
Well, no, I know the basis of school originally was to teach these subjects, but now I'm just kind of thinking they kind of need to reimagine that. We need to teach these people and be there for these people and help guide these people for them to figure out themselves. Um, so kind of looking at that and uh, just kind of something and I don't know if this isn't necessarily as big a problem in places like Bristow and all that just because it's kind of the only school in the area and kind of the only thing. Um, it's just kind of getting back to community investment in the school and not just, and I, I hark about this online a lot, whether you're like our age, have no kids, you're not teaching or anything like that you're older and your kids have all graduated and gone off and stuff. There needs to be investment in the community and the schools in that community. Um, I, me and my wife did something that most people in my building don't do. We live in our community. I have a student that just finished eighth grade that lives, I can see his house from my window right here. I have two more students around the core. Well, it's a small town, this makes sense, but like in the city, it's almost unheard of. We have so many teachers that commute here from other communities and I'm a visible part of that community. I think there needs to be more of, and there's nothing completely wrong with commuting in, but I think there needs to be more of that, that, that kind of your teachers live where you live. The people where you live are committed to your school. There's I can buy t-shirts from my school from this store. I can see people with stuff in their yard supporting my school. Um, people from the community come to our events. They come to this and stuff like that, not just the parents and alumni and stuff like that. So I'd like to see mainly in urban schools across the country, more community buy-in. Um, while we don't have the money and resources like some districts do, I think that we have enough people to make a different impact. Mm. So kind of long, but that's just something I've been thinking about a lot lately. Again, as I sit on my porch and three of my kids walk by and they're like, what's up, Mr. Parker? And I'm like, hey, just chilling. <laughs> <laughs> or I, I go to the store and my, some of my former students work there and I'm like, stuff like that, so. I love that, man. I think that is, I think all three of those are great, but I think that last one is such a important thing that, be, you know, because of a lot of societal changes, um, the community of, of the school has just gone away. Um, and that's, there's a whole lot of reasons for that. But um, yeah, that community investment in education um, and the community valuing their students and what they're learning uh, can be a fundamentally changing force for entire generations of kids. Yeah. Um, well, man, it has been a pleasure. There's, we could probably do a whole nother hour if we wanted to, but uh, I don't <laughs> want to talk too long today. So thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate your, uh, appreciate getting your opinion on a lot of stuff. So, um, yeah, uh, everybody that listened to the whole episode, thank you guys so, so much. We will definitely probably have Eric on again. Uh, please make sure you're listening to some of the past episodes, and we will see you guys next time.